We are in the third week of this series that I've called the Four Solas. And as you can tell from the front of your worship folder, we have been through so far Sola Scriptura, which says Scripture alone is the standard. We stand alone on the Word of God. Remember how that goes? The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And then last week we talked about Solus Christus. By Christ alone we are saved. But today we turn to sola gratia. Salvation is by grace alone. I want to start with a quote. You'll see it up on the screen. It's on your worship folder also on page 7 where the outline is. Some words by Kim Riddleberger. He writes, When we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us. That little statement, those words, teach us two very important truths in which we're going to tie the message around today. One part, it says that grace means that there's something good in God. But secondly, grace means that there is absolutely nothing good in us. See, everything we know about God's mercy is tied up in those few sentences. And there's something really good about it. I mean, we love the fact about the goodness of God. But sometimes, secretly, we doubt that second part about nothing good in us. We almost look at that statement as being a little bit too harsh, too strong, too judgmental, too negative. But if you have trouble with that last little line where it says there's nothing good in us, uh, join the crowd. There are a lot of people who don't think that they're really all that bad. For example, in a recent survey of evangelical Christians across North America, 84% agreed with this statement that when it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves. Eight out of every ten evangelical Christians says that God helps those who help themselves. And guess what, friends? Not only is that verse not in the Bible, that statement is not true, no matter how many people suggest that it is. In that same survey, 50% of evangelical Christians said that there are other ways to come to God besides Jesus. Well, guess what? If that's true, I wasted my time last week telling you that Jesus was the only way. Thirty-four percent, one out of every three evangelicals said, all good people go to heaven. Now, I want to balance that out with Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, Not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does does good, not even one. Now, did you catch that? No one righteous. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. No one who does good. Unless we misunderstood those three no ones, Twice in that same passage, you hear the word, not even one. No one, not even one. 
Now, you might want to argue with those words, but at least you have to admit that St. Paul is crystal clear in his indictment of humanity. And still, there are a lot of people who kind of cry out against that harsh judgment. I mean, people still think, for some reason, surely we're not as bad as that. If somebody told me that, I guess I'd go back to some words of uh, an ancient church historian by the name of Anselm who said, You have not yet considered how great your sin really is. Friends, here's the simple truth. If you want to see the law side of this message, then we're going to come back to the gospel side. But the law side is this. Until we grasp our, our true condition, we are never going to fully understand what God's grace is all about. Now, we can define grace in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes, like in confirmation, I always talk about G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. But sometimes grace is also... Uh, Defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Now, that's true as far as it goes, but I don't know that that goes far enough. Grace is really contrary to merit, favor of God. I mean, God's grace is that which is in God himself that moves him to reach out to poor, miserable sinners like you and me who deserve nothing but death and hell and still wants to shower kindness and goodness and love on us. One thing we always need to remember about that word grace is that grace always starts with God. Grace never starts with man. It's always God who takes the initiative. He makes the first move. If God did not make the first move, guess what? You wouldn't make any move at all. And yet I've talked to any number of people in my life who said, well, I, I think grace means that we do our part. We've got to do our part. And then God does his part. Granted, God does most of it, but we've got to do our part. You know, that's a very American way of thinking, to be quite honest. That can-do spirit. And that can-do spirit is pretty good in a lot of areas of life. But in the arena of salvation, can-do is deadly poison. See, grace means we owe Everything to God. Not some stuff, not most stuff, but everything. But what if somebody says, well, are you telling me that I don't have a part to play somehow? Well, that reminds me of a church service down at Angola Prison a number of years ago. One of the inmates shared a testimony. And in this testimony, he talked about how he came to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior. And he just magnified, if you want to do that, the magnified the grace of God. I mean, he just, grace of God, grace of God did this, grace of God did this. And, and afterwards, I, I went up to him and thanked him for his message. But another inmate came up, he said, you know, you, you talked a great deal about God's part in your salvation. Why didn't you talk about your part? And I still remember this inmate took a step back from this guy and looked at him. Like, what planet did you come from? Uh, but then what he said, me, said was, well, please forgive me. You want to know what my part was? My part was to run away from God as fast as I could, and I kept running until he finally caught me. I thought that was a pretty cool answer. God teaches us that our only part in salvation is to do the sinning and running. God does the part. God does it all. 
I want you to think for a moment again about the human condition. We'll go through this pretty quick, but, you know, before we were saved, before we came to God, we were so dead that only God could make us alive. We were so blind that only God could make us see. We sang some of that in Amazing Grace today. We were so sinful that it took a great and gracious God to forgive us. We were so bad that only God could make us good. We were so lost that only God could possibly find us and save us. We were so helpless that only God could change us. Now, in short, what does that mean? It means that without Jesus, we are sinful, lost, helpless, hopeless, doomed, and damned. I can't think of any more words, but I'd add more on there if I could. Nothing in us is worth saving. Nothing we could do could possibly save us. See, if God doesn't do something for us, friends, well, we're in deep weeds. We're in big trouble. That's the true condition of every last man, woman, and child born into this world. Now, God's grace is his basic character. God can no more be ungracious then he could be unloving or unjust. And because God is gracious, what does he do? And because we're so sinful, grace needs to come down from above. And I'll say it again. It never starts with us. It always starts with God. Grace is always free. Now, we hear that word every once in a while, the free grace of God, but you know something, that even that little statement is kind of redundant when you think about it. Because if grace isn't free, it's not really grace. If you have to pay for or do anything to earn it or deserve it, or even if you, have to, you think that you've got to do something later in order to prove that you really got it, you have no grace at all. And by the way, I'll tell you, there is a point in which grace may be free, but it doesn't mean it didn't cost somebody something. Now, Paul says in Ephesians, it's the gift of God. But yet in John 3.16, it tells us what grace really cost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But don't ever make the mistake that somehow God was obligated to send his Son into this world. I mean, the only obligation God has is to be consistent with his nature. And his nature is to be gracious. His nature is to be kind and loving. He sent his son, not because we necessarily needed it, but he sent his son because that's the kind of God God is. Now, let me ask this question. What difference does sola gracia make? I'm going to kind of wrap this up with about five implications regarding God's amazing grace. Here's the first thing I think about. It destroys all human self-confidence. I've wondered for many years of my life if there's really a good word, a good word that starts with the word self. Not very many if you come up with one. You know, these days we hear a lot about, you know, self-confidence and self-esteem. We've got to teach our kids self-esteem. I mean, we have to develop in our children self-worth. Now, I want to tell you that in the deepest biblical sense, there is no such thing as self-esteem or self-confidence. In fact, the Bible teaches against it. God, the Bible teaches us to have God esteem. I mean, who is it that I'm in? Who, who am I in Christ? It teaches us to practice God confidence 
or a word that I just came up with a couple of weeks ago. I wrote somebody. I called it Godfidence. My confidence is found in God. Many of you that are old-time Lutherans know the song that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The hymn goes on to talk about everything else. Sinking sand. Sinking sand. Well, here's the second thing. Grace, God's grace frees us from having to win God's favor. I mean, that liberates us from that endless cycle of doing more and more and more and more and more and more and more, trying to somehow pacify God. I mean, grace just means God loves us. He, he loves us eternally. He showers His kindness. There's nothing we can do. We can, we can get out of that little rat cage where we're just kind of chasing after it. Well, grace also enables us to serve God without fear. I'm still amazed to this day how many people that I talk to that have been in the church, I'm not quite sure what that means, in the church for their whole lives, who still wonder whether they're going to heaven. They, they wonder if they've said enough prayers. They wonder if they have witnessed their faith to enough people. Uh, they wondered if they served God enough or were on a certain number of committees. Uh, you know, did they put the right amount of money in the plate? Well, the answer to that question, if you're ever going to ask me, did you do enough? I'm going to tell you the answer is no, 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 no. Whatever you throw up there. No, you did not do enough. Which is why when you put yourself on the performance scale with God, you're doomed to fail. I may have shared this before, but you ever think about, you know, bottom line? You know, if good works actually get us to heaven, how many do you need to do? Wouldn't you kind of like know that? You don't suppose if works was the way to do it, that God would give you a number? I mean, think about this, Ted. You get to heaven, and God says, So, Ted, good to see you. What brings you here? Well, I've been as good as I could be. God says, well, let's take a look here. Book of Life, got it. Thamer. Now oh, we got it right under plumbing. I see where it goes. <laughs> Thamer, comma, Ted. Wow, Ted. <laughs> Talk about doing good stuff. In your life, 146 billion, 359 million, 213,009 good works. You missed it by one. <laughs> Wouldn't that be demoralizing? I, that's what happens when you chase good works. You just don't know if you've ever done it. It puts you on a slippery slope. On the other hand, if you understand that God accepts you on the basis of what Jesus has done, then you can relax. I've already gone through this in confirmation. We talked about why God should let you into heaven. And I think I told you the answer is because he has to. Because he says, I'm going to send my son that whoever believes in him will not perish. And if I believe that, I'm in. I'm just up there to collect his, on his promise. Here's number four. Grace takes the pressure off our witnessing. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but a lot of people, a lot of well-meaning Christians and even Lutherans, Consciously or subconsciously feel that we need to 
pressure God people. We got to pressure people in the church, twist their arms and pressure them. You know, so if we find a likely prospect, we we come across somebody who doesn't know Jesus, we kind of like to back them in the corner and club them into submission with our Bible. And really let them have it. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to cry in hell. You need to turn to Jesus. He loves you. But if you don't, He's going to cook you forever. And if they don't want to be saved, you ever deal with somebody who wants no part of your Christianity? Well, then you say, well, the heck with you. You get mad at them. You give up on them. You bail out on them. Now, I'll bet that's happened to virtually every one of us to some degree or another. You thought you had one on the hook. And you started reeling like crazy, and you tried to do everything, all the zeal and all of the stuff you learned, and they just kind of backed off. And you just thought, you're on your own. Well, sometimes I think in our zeal, we almost begin to think that salvation depends on us and not on God. I got news for you, friends. Our only job is to make the gospel message plain and true. That's why I told you last week. My only job, really, as a pastor, is to point you in the direction of the cross. Nothing I can do, nothing I learned in seminary, nothing I learned in a doctoral program ever taught me how to actually save someone. None of us saves anyone. That's God's job. Now, I'm not arguing against having zeal. Not at all. I am not arguing against fervency or tears or urgent appeals. And we ought to be fervent in our preaching. Uh, we ought to urgently call friends and neighbors and family members and men and women and children you know, to repentance. But in the end, only God can change a heart. It's only through the work of the Spirit that that heart can be changed. That's sola gracia. It's not a very popular doctrine in America these days, by the way. It's never really been a very popular doctrine to unregenerate people. Yet, it is very biblical. No one can be saved without God's grace. Our salvation depends 100% completely on God. That's what sola gracia really means. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Even your faith is a gift. I love the way Luther said. He said, our faith is a gift and we are such lousy beggars, we don't have enough brains to raise our hands. That God literally has to put it in our hands. So it's not even ours. We don't have the ability. Most of you know a Bible passage probably describes Christianity better. It's almost like the like the Missouri Synod Lutheran Bible verse, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Did you catch three words? And I tried to accent them. Three words in the first part of that verse. By grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? And then it uses the word this, and this, not from yourselves. I guess I'll give you a little bit of a grammar lesson here. What is the antecedent of this? Now, some of you, want, some of you just disappeared on me. It's like, antecedent, what is he talking about? Well, is, is it grace? Is it saved? Or is it faith? What is the antecedent of that word, this? Well, the answer is 
Yeah. It's all three. The grace is not of yourself. This is not of yourself. The salvation, this is not of yourself. Even faith to believe, this is not of yourself. See what you just learned, and even about English? Luther talked about it this morning in adult Bible class, and I, I pray that you come tonight and enjoy this performance, this one-man show of Luther at six. But Luther was a pretty colorful character. And he talked about grace this way, quote, God creates faith in the human heart the same way that he created the world. He found nothing and created something. I think that's kind of clever, too. My grandmother's favorite hymn. I remember that my grandson sang, I think, part of it or uh, at a funeral. What are you whispering to me? What did I say? Oh, my grandson. Well, whatever. One of my relatives. <laughs> well, I am getting old. And I probably even got the wrong hymn now that I come to think about it. I, think her, I kind of think her favorite hymn was What a Friend We Have in Jesus, but for some reason Rock of Ages came to mind. So I'm going to do Rock of Ages instead. It's probably one of my favorite hymns. He can sing it at my funeral, whoever whichever relative shows up. But in Rock of Ages, you know this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply what? To the cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Think about that first line. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's why you need sola Gracia. We come to God with empty hands or we don't come at all. We need God's grace because without it, our hands will always be empty. And I hope you can now begin to see where these four solas kind of fit together. You know, on the basis of the Bible alone, we come to know that salvation is in Christ alone. And that comes through grace alone. And we receive it by faith alone. Let me end with this passage from Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Now to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I think there are two amazing statements. One is this, that God saves people who give up trying to save themselves. And God saves the ungodly while they're still ungodly. And we fight against this. I mean, many people think God wants good people in heaven. So they spend their lives trying to be good enough to get to heaven. To that I say, wrong. Now, don't misunderstand my next sentence, but I don't know that God wants good people in heaven. He wants bad people in heaven so that by saving bad people, he can demonstrate the magnitude of his grace. Now, I'm not really saying that somebody who's good in the name of Jesus isn't going to be in heaven, but I hope you just know the difference. Many of us are kind of mixed up on that. We think God is saying, clean up your act, and then I'll save you. Or we think that God is saying, hey, come here, buddy, I'll clean up your act, and then I'll save you. God never said anything like that anywhere. 
He says something entirely different. He says, I'll save you while you are still dirty, and then I will help you clean up your act. While you're still dirty, I will cover you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, God saves the ungodly while they're still ungodly. That's the miracle of justification. There's your theology word for the day. And when you come to Christ, now still dirty and still unclean, not only does he save you, justification, he begins that inner process through the presence of the Spirit to help you clean up your act. Here comes your second theology word, sanctification. Luther figured out that there were two words, justification and sanctification. His problem was he had been taught backwards. He was taught that you had to sanctify or clean yourself up so that God would save you. And when he started reading his Bible, he found out it went the other way around. God does the saving, and then God does the cleaning. Let me wrap up just a couple of summary statements. Number one, when it comes to salvation, faith and works are mutually exclusive. I'll tell you, friend, if you want to be saved by good works, I'm going to tell you how. If you want to, if you want to walk out of here today and say, I want to be saved by good works, then, then make sure you're here in church every week. Go to Sunday school, adult Bible class. Make sure you get yourself baptized. Make sure you give the appropriate amount of money. Live by the golden rules. Be a good citizen. Put your hand over your heart when you say the pledge and sing the national anthem. And give to the United Way and follow the Ten Commandments and do your best every single day. If that's your decision, then you need to live with the consequences. But, and remember there's always a but somewhere, but if you want to be saved by faith, then cling to Jesus and to him alone. You cannot have both faith and works. Or you can have faith or you can have works, but you can't have them both. When it comes to salvation, faith rules out works, and works rule out faith. See, God will save anyone who will believe in Jesus and Savior. Now, what does that mean? You must believe that he is the only Savior in this world. You need to believe that he came down from heaven for you. In fact, he'd have come down from heaven even if you were the only person who'd ever lived. You believe that he died on the cross, paying for all your sins. You believe that he rose from the dead on the third day. And you believe that he is ready to forgive all your sins and that he wants to give you his perfect righteousness. Now, God has said all of those things about his son. The question is, have you ever said, yes, Lord, I believe all of those things? You know, when you get to heaven someday, I look forward to it. In fact, I pray about it every day. Like we prayed about it before. Thy kingdom come. When you get to heaven someday, you're going to discover something. You're going to discover that everything you believed about Jesus has come to be true. You will discover that God was as good as his word. There's nothing good in you. There's nothing good in me. But there is something amazingly good in God. And that, friends, that's our hope of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that in spite of the fact that there was no one righteous, that no one understands, no one seeks you, 
that you chased after us, that you sent your Son. We know it's a free gift. You put it in our hands. We know it is by grace through faith. And we thank you for that. And on this, a Reformation Sunday, we also thank you for people like uh, Dr. Martin Luther and many others who brought people's attention back to the Scriptures, brought them back to an understanding of what it means uh, that Scripture alone is the standard, that by Christ alone we are saved, and that salvation is by grace alone and justification by faith alone. And Lord, this morning we also lift before you... Uh, some people who, who we know, we, we pray that you surround Lois Tollefson with your gracious hands. Be with her and with Arland as, and their children as they're making some difficult decisions this morning. We pray also for people who enter eternal rest, Eleanor Droughts, and for Michael Carter. We pray that uh, you give them that triumphant entry into heaven. And Lord, uh, continue to be with other people. We think of uh, Jean Clement, for example. We bring, ask that you bring some healing to uh, the broken bone. And uh, surround everyone who is hurting in any way, whether it be physically or emotionally or psychologically or spiritually, whatever. For Lord, it is you and you alone that we can turn to. You and you alone that brings us health and hope and healing. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.